Let's turn to the word of the Lord. We're beginning a new series today in the book of Ruth. If you have your Bible with you, I'm proud of you, and you can open your Bible to the book of Ruth. You might wonder, where do I find the book of Ruth? Well, there's two big sections to the Bible, right? The biggest one is the Old Testament, and then the one that's uh, at the back is the New Testament. This is in that first part. It's in the Old Testament. And in fact, if you've been part of PCF during our time of preaching, you may have noticed that we've moved our way forward in that book. We've moved our way forward in that, uh, that Old Testament. We went through the book of Joshua together, didn't we? We went through the book of Judges together. And if you know where Joshua is, and if you know where Judges is, guess what? You're in luck. You have just arrived at Ruth. Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Some people thought that was one book in the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. If you were one of those that uh, had to learn to memorize books of the Bible in Sunday school, you might have memorized one book that way. It's sort of like P in the uh, alphabet. Maybe you thought that was one letter, P, but it's multiple letters. And Joshua Judges Ruth is multiple books. But in fact, the book of Ruth actually occurs in the days of the judges. And so I want to remind you of something that we finished with in our series on Judges uh, when we concluded that last year, late last year. Remember how the book of Judges ended? Oh, what if I took a test right now? Wouldn't that be interesting? Does anybody remember how the book of Judges ended? Well, if you opened up to Ruth, you're not too far. You can cheat, you know. It's like those, remember open book exams? You always thought it was going to be easy, but then the teacher really threw the book at you because they said, well, it's open, so you ought to know everything, right? And then you could tell the people who studied or the people who didn't. The one who didn't was like looking for every answer in the book. So it's good to kind of know where you're going, right? And so if you're at Ruth, you can take a look at the way that Judges ended. In those days, we were told at the end of the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes in those days. And it's in those days that Ruth lived. The name of our series is the Ruth Regency. The Ruth Regency. I'm taking a little bit of liberty with the term regency here. You might wonder, what is a regency? A regent is a leader like a king a sovereign, but a regency typically refers to a situation in which a king or a ruler or leader needs someone to sort of be a placeholder, someone to govern until that leader often comes of age. So for instance, in the days of kings and the progression of kings as it occurred as actual uh, governmental leaders, not just ceremonial figures, but true heads of state who were also involved in the political and often the military governance of their nations. In the days when that was the case, sometimes you would have, especially if the situation was that the next king was going to be the child of the prior king, as it usually is the case, you'd have a situation where a young child became king. For instance, a young boy or a young um, child that is born to a king and that king dies, you can't have a little infant ruling the nation, but you can't have somebody else who might try and steal the throne away from them and destabilize the entire nation. And so there would be a regent put in place or a regency. Someone 
who could faithfully follow in the line of the king, but in a way that prepares for the king to come to his throne. Why would I choose this terminology for Ruth? Because the whole story of Ruth is about introducing us to a woman who was a foreigner to the nation of Israel, who came into the land of Israel through marriage, who came literally physically into the land of Israel in the days of the judges when there was no king, and yet who became, in the line and lineage of God's legacy, a grandmother to kings. Because from the relationship which Ruth will finally form as the book comes to its conclusion, there will be born a line of people that ultimately results in a man named Jesse and a son named David. And the son named David becomes a king named David. And not just one king, but a king to whom God says, I will make of you a dynasty. In other words, there will always be a descendant of David ruling on the throne of Israel. What you and I know is that the son of David, not just the immediate son known as Solomon, among others, but the son who comes in the line of kings is ultimately the king of kings. In other words, the story of Ruth is a story of how, in part, Jesus came to earth. It's no wonder that the story of Ruth centers around Bethlehem. It's no wonder that the story of Ruth describes how the land of Israel went from being a place where there was no king and everybody was doing their own thing to a place where the God-ordained king had established a line, a legacy. And so in that, Ruth is a kind of regency. Ruth shows us how you and I, simply by following the Lord, are brought into his family. Remember that when Jesus finally came to earth in the incarnation of Christ, the baby born in Bethlehem, as John puts it, referring to Jesus' manifestation among people, he came to his own. He came to his kingdom. He came to his people, but his own did not receive him. And we're going to see something of that in the Ruth Regency as well. In other words, sometimes people don't see what God is doing right in their midst. Could that be you and I? That God is doing something grand and great and inviting our lives to be a part of it? But there is the question of where we'll be willing to invest in that or not. Whether we'll be willing to trust in that or not. He came to his own, it said of Jesus in John chapter 1. And his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now God is king, always and forever. In fact, in the days of Judges, when it says there was no king in Israel, the reason is because God was to be their king. But if God is king, you can't just do whatever is right in your own eyes. You must instead do, as Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him, follow him, and he will direct your paths. And you know where he will direct them to? Into the regency of his royal work. He wants to lead you into that kind of relationship with him where you become heirs to the throne, 
heirs together in the things of the kingdom. I hope that sounds appealing to you because that's what the Ruth Regency is about and that's what the word of the Lord to us in this series is about. It's about God saying, trust me, follow me, and I will lead you into a place where your life becomes part of my story, my kingdom, my glory. Hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. But there are things that get in the way of that. And a lot of times, those things revolve around the places of pain, confusion, loss, and long-suffering. When it doesn't look clear that God is going to do what you are really hoping that God would do for you, those are the places where the invitation from God to trust him is hardest, but those are also the places where it means the most because it's in those places that you and I, if we will trust and have faith, we will grow. And we will not only grow in the things of God, but the things of God will grow in us and bring to fruition a whole legacy, a legacy of life. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today and this true story about such an extraordinary woman, we are mindful that when she was alive on earth, she probably had no idea that anybody would be talking about her story thousands of years later. Lord, we don't know just how much our lives might mean in your hands, but we do know this. They will never be better placed anywhere else. So we come to put our lives once again in your hands today. That's our honest, earnest prayer right now, Lord. That everything that concerns us, everything we're about, our whole future, our whole world, we're putting it in your hands today. And we're opening our ears today to your word and opening our hearts to your will and asking earnestly that you would fulfill your will in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Loyalty, labor, love, and legacy. Four aspects of Ruth's character. Four chapters of Ruth's story. The story of Ruth is about a friend who loves at all times as Proverbs 17, 17 means. Her name means friendship. And you know, she fulfills her name. As I've preached many times from this pulpit, the names that people have in the word of God matter, and your name matters too. And there is a label of the Lord over your life. Now we're going to see in Ruth's story that the label that the Lord gives is fulfilled in the life that the Lord lives in the person who trusts in him. But we're also going to see examples of times when people look at that label and they say, 
I don't like it, I don't want it, or they let it lead them in a direction away from God. You and I have the opportunity to hear from the Lord today. But are we willing to let him speak to us? We will be if we believe this much about the Lord. God is your friend. That may be one of the hardest things for people to believe. And actually, it shouldn't be too easy to believe. (laughs) As is so often the case, when there's a truth about God or from God, and those are pretty much the same thing, anything that comes from God is of God, there's often two ways to fall off of that rail. There's a thin, narrow path of God's truth. It's not hard to see, but there's a balancing act involved. One is to take too casually the idea that God is my friend. Of course God is my friend. We pal around together, and yet if I don't have a healthy appreciation for the fact that this friend is also king, king of kings, lord of lords, the massive, almighty creator, then I won't hold his friendship as very sacred because I don't hold him as very sacred. And yet when I begin to consider the awesomeness, the grandeur, the royalty, the purity, the holiness of God, I may become afraid and even doubtful at the very idea that such a glorious being could say to you and I, I call you friend. But that's exactly the the statement that Jesus made to his disciples. In fact, he made the statement to them, even at the very table that you and I come to today as we come to the conclusion of this service later. If you're streaming with us at home or watching a recording, we're going to partake of communion together. If you've got a cracker or a piece of bread at home, uh, something to drink that can approximate the juice of of the vine and the blood of the Christ, I hope you'll participate with us. At the very least, bring yourself in prayer into the communion of faith that we'll be partaking of in this room at the conclusion of service. Jesus, on the very night that he was betrayed, when one of the 12 was going to betray him, when all of the 12 were going to be scattered like sheep scattered when the shepherd is struck, Jesus said to them, I call you friends. And greater love has no one than this, to lay down their life for their friends. The word says that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. His name is Jesus. And he says to you, I am the friend who loves you at all times. Even when you're betraying me, I'm still loving you, says Jesus. Even when you're going in the wrong direction, I'm still coming after you like a shepherd searching for that one lost sheep. I'm the friend, says Jesus, who loves you better than a brother at all times, in all ways, because I'm the one who made you and knows you better than you know yourself, and I have a plan for you, for a future and a hope. You know, that can be hard to believe when you're living in the land of loss. And it's a land like that that Ruth will have to walk through. It begins like this. Once upon a time. I'm utilizing the message version 
of the book of Ruth, which is a dynamic translation. It's not a word-for-word translation, but it is very reverent to the original text. But it makes great effort by the, um, the author of this translation, um, the late Eugene Peterson, pastor, poet, writer, now with the Lord, to encapsulate the ideas that are in the original language and to help you and I to hear them in a more modern context so that we might understand them because God doesn't desire that his word would be buried in ancient poetry to such a degree that you wouldn't be able to hear it. That ancient poetry is beautiful, but there is also a present message. And the, and the spirit of the Lord can make that present message available to you and I. So I want you to hear the book of Ruth as we work our way through it over the next four weeks as a story, not because it's a piece of fiction, although it is a wonderful short story of the scriptures, and it's a love story for the ages, but it's also a true story. So when I say once upon a time, I'm not saying this is a fable or a fairy tale, but you know what? You and I live Once upon a time. Once upon a time, the world was struck and stricken by a novel virus that wrapped itself around the globe, confusing and disorienting people, killing and also dividing. And people couldn't decide how to handle it. And some people didn't believe in it. And other people couldn't believe that anyone else didn't believe in it. And people divided themselves over it. Once upon a time, a storied nation which had prided itself on its ability to transition from leader to leader in peace and in reverence found itself in a shambles of confusion and division. Once upon a time, a mighty old nation with a mighty mountain of problems reached out to grab hold of a land near it that it said belonged to it when the land itself said, we are our own. Once upon a time, the world again was rocked by the winds of war. Once upon a time, in your life, something happened on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday. A friend said something that cut you to the quick. A spouse turned against you when you thought that they were there for you. A child made a decision that you couldn't make for them and you regretted it deeply. A doctor came into the room and said, the test results are not what we had hoped for. A parent died. A job got harder. A class got longer. A dream got deferred. A hope got denied. Something happened in your life once upon a time, and the time is now. Your life is about more than you realize. You're not just living in an isolated bubble of your own experience. You're part of the story of the whole world. 75 years ago, my mother and her family were driving through the desert in the middle of a January night, 1947. And their car went off the road. We'll never know exactly what happened. But what came out of it was that my grandfather and one of my uncles was killed. 
My grandmother was desperately injured. My other uncle also injured, and my mother herself was injured. Throughout her life, I've heard the story of what happened when she, as a six-and-a-half-year-old child, was the only person in that car crash that was able to be conscious and get out of the car and call for help. She had to climb up a 100-foot embankment and stand on the side of an Arizona highway. In 1947, in the middle of the night, there's no street lights, there's no GPS, and there's hardly any traffic. And when finally a car came along, while her family is bleeding and dying in the wreck that is down in the embankment, she screamed at the top of her lungs, which is pretty loud. She had a good voice. Until that vehicle stopped. I've heard that story so many times. And in my mother's old age and in her uh, dementia and memory loss now, that experience from 75 years ago seems to be one that comes back again and again. You might wonder what happened to her that night. She describes it very often. She said, Jesus was there. She said, I couldn't see him, but I could hear him, not outside, but inside my head. And there was a light that shined on the wreck. Now, you can believe that or not, but that's been her testimony all of my life. She said, I could see and I heard someone talking to me inside my head, and I knew it was Jesus, and he said, you're going to be okay. And she wanted to check on everybody in the car, and she saw her father there, and she heard the voice say, don't look at him, he's dead. But it's okay. You're going to be okay. You need to get help, and I'm going to help you. Now, you know what was interesting to me as she was telling the story once again this week. I was sitting there because once upon a time, a bunch of stuff happened in my life this week. And it felt like one thing that went wrong became 10 things that went wrong, became 50 things that went wrong. And it went from the leak of a faucet to the, you know, the, the demands of a car to the problems of a family. And all of a sudden, it just felt like, when is the onslaught of the trials and troubles going to stop? And I'm not forgetful, by the way, that I've been up here preaching to you, count it all joy. But I didn't count it all joy. Sorry, but I didn't. I should, but I didn't. I counted it as a great burden. <laughs> and I was counting on God to kind of stop the onslaught, and it kept coming. But at some point, there I am sitting, talking with my parents, and my mother's telling the story for the millionth time. And I'm thinking, I've heard this story so many times. And the Lord said to me, you're alive because of that story. He said, why did a car come along when it did? You know, in all the times I've thought about it, I never really thought about the fact that they could have been out there all night. And they probably would have died. You ever been in the desert in January? It's cold. They were bleeding, injured, in shock. And if, if my mother would have died, I wouldn't be here. And somebody else would be preaching to you today, which you might say, well, you know, <laughs> sorry, but that's the way it is. I don't know who Hazel would be with, but she'd be with someone else. Now listen. The two people 
who are so precious in my heart that I can't even begin to express it, Margareta and Peter, my daughter and son wouldn't exist. I'm not telling you my story. I'm telling you yours. How many people came before you in the regency of your life, holding the place and paving the way for you to be here? I'll bet your parents have some stories, and their parents do, but that is the tip of the iceberg, my friends. Do you have any idea how many people are in the tree that gave the way to you? Thousands of people over thousands of years with thousands of opportunities to be wiped out. And every single one of them is absolutely pivotal to you because every link in that chain is the only way for you to arrive in this world. People say, you know, I would really trust God if he would do a miracle for me. The sheer fact of your existence is an absolute miracle. You do not exist by chance. There is a perfect formula of people of the genetic background and the genealogy that creates you. And no one but God could know it and no one but God could do it and God did it. He created you. There's no one else like you. But there's thousands of people who paved the way for you that you'll never know except in the kingdom. I think that'll be part of the glory of heaven, friends, is meeting all these people that came before you, maybe meeting all these people that come after you and realizing that the tapestry of this arrangement of humanity, this real kingdom of God, this real family of God, the body of Christ, it's the most beautiful, extraordinary masterpiece of God. Once upon a time, God said, I will make such a people for myself. And every step along the way involved his awareness that you are part of the people. You are part of the kingdom. Maybe you have to be drug into it, kicking and screaming sometimes. It sounds like that may be happening somewhere in the building. <laughs> yeah, well, that happens once upon a time too. The people of Israel understood from the Lord that that was what he was up to when he made a nation of them. And he spoke that to Joshua and through Joshua. And he spoke to that, that to them again and again in the days of the judges. But again and again, remember what the judges' cycle was. Things went well, people turned away from God, and then things fell apart. And when things fell apart, the point of the cycle was that God was allowing them to experience the result of their choices, but also inviting them to return to the source of their hope. In other words, sometimes when you are feeling the way I was feeling this week, like, God, how long are you going to let this go on? It may very well be that God is asking, well, how long do I need to in order for you to come back to trusting me and focusing yourself on me? And that's what the judge's cycle did over and over. But in this story, 
we find out that sometimes the way that people responded to loss was to try and arrange a human situation that would solve the problem. <laughs> Surely we can relate to that. In Ruth chapter 1, I want to talk first about the land of loss. We're going to go through the story together. It's a fairly brief chapter. And then I'm going to make some summary conclusions about the various sections of it. Let's hear the story as it is first. Once upon a time, it was back in the days when the judges led Israel. That is, those military and civic leaders who were called and anointed by God in various parts of the country, in various times of its history, to help give them victory over the enemies and the arrangements of negative circumstances that God had allowed because his people had turned away from him. The judges brought people back to the Lord. But in those days, the people kept turning away from God, away from his kingship and rule and towards their own will. And so, troubles came upon the land, including a famine. A man from Bethlehem in Judah left home to live in the country of Moab. There's going to be a lot of names and regions that you hear in this. I hope you can hang on to them a little bit because I want to say some things about them when we come to the conclusion of today's chapter. The man and his wife and his two sons left the land that they were in in order to get the famine behind them and find food in a foreign country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. His sons were Malan and Kilion. They were all Ephrathites. That means they were from Bethlehem, also known as Ephrathah, in the region of Judah, like a state. Think of it that way. They all went to the country of Moab, which was a nearby uh, nation of a related people group, but they were not Israelites. And in fact, the Lord had said to his people, do not intermingle and do not intermarry with the Moabites, because the Moabites were involved in the worship of other gods, not the God of Israel. But in Israel, the God of Israel wasn't providing food. He was letting a famine occur. So we're going to leave this land and go to a different people because at least those people have food, or at least that's what they thought. But in the land of Moab, they found that they were still in the land of loss. You can cross borders, you can change nations, but you can still be in the place of a problem if you're looking for help somewhere other than the Lord. Elimelech died in Moab. Naomi was widowed. She had only her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives because how could they marry Israelite women when they're living among the Moabites? The name of the first woman that married the first son was Orpah. The second was named Friendship. Her name was Ruth. So they lived there in Moab for the next 10 years. A decade goes by. But then, over that time, the two brothers, Malin and Killian, also died. Now the woman was left without either her sons or her husband. Three widows, that's really where the story starts to begin. 
A woman who has herself been, in a way, three times widowed. Because in losing her husband and her sons, not only has she lost the most intimate relationships of her life, but she has also lost her primary livelihood. Because in that era, it would not be conceivable for a woman like Naomi to simply go out and get a job. There were not jobs like that to be had. So now a woman who is probably elderly or certainly advanced enough in years to have two adult married sons and her own husband having died is in the position of likely having to do manual labor in the fields simply to avoid starvation. And we can presume that they probably didn't have much of anything saved up because if they left the land in a famine and arrived in a place where they were dying, the famine was probably still persisting. In fact, we have some more indication of that in just a moment. Naomi, one day, got herself together, along with her two daughters-in-law, to leave the country of Moab. Why? She had heard that in her homeland of Israel, the famine had concluded. God had visited his people. There was rain again. There were crops again. There was hope again. (laughs) So the very land that they left, because they felt that God had turned away from it, was the place that God turned them back to because he was pouring out on it, pouring out the goodness of God. So she started out from the place where she had been living in Moab, along with her two daughters-in-law, on the road back to the land of Judah. But something happened on the road. I think Naomi must have had a crisis of conscience. Maybe she saw a downcast look on at least one of the daughter's faces. In any case, they came to a a rest stop, perhaps, and Naomi said to both of her daughters-in-law, go back. Imagine what she's saying here. These are the only two people to help her in the world. I think there's also this in it. She's giving up. Look, I'm going back to where I come from. You should go back to where you come from too. May God treat you. By the way, when she says God there, in the original text, there's no confusion about what God she's talking about. She's saying may Yahweh, may the God of Israel, treat you as graciously as you treated your deceased husbands, my sons, and me. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband, because Naomi knows that's the only way these women are going to avoid the fate that she has. Otherwise, they're going to grow old as widows, and they're all going to be living in the land of loss, and they're all going to be having to do manual labor, and they're probably just all going to die together. And so Naomi is saying, let me die alone. I think of later on uh, two women who speak to two different prophets, Elijah and Elisha, but similarly to say, I'm at the place where there's only enough food for me to make one more cake for me and my son, and then we're going to die. Or the woman that says, we only have enough oil to pay one more bill, and then the collectors are going to come and slap us into debtor's prison. Both of those instances in the later days of the prophets are people who are feeling what Naomi is feeling, what maybe you can relate to, that feeling of, you know what, I give up. And... The rest of you, save yourselves. I'm going down with this ship, but you don't have to. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband. And she kisses them, and they're all breaking down in tears, openly weeping. 
But they say, no. No, we're going to go on with you. We'll keep going on with you to your people. This would have been considered the socially honorable thing to do in the society of that time. Don't turn away from this widowed woman who is reliant upon you, your youth and your energy, reliant upon you for family and connection. Even consider this. Naomi is saying, I'm going to go on this road home. You know, you and I don't often think about what it meant to travel by foot in the days of the Bible. But it meant danger. It meant that you had to pass through territory where there might not be any fresh water. There might not be any food except what you had on you. And there were plenty of brigands, robbers on the road who would steal from you. Remember in the later era of Jesus when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan? There were people then that were willing to mug and rob you. And think about how much easier it was for them to do so if you were out dozens of miles from where anybody would see you. You could come to a town, and that town might not be willing to let a stranger in, especially if you're all alone. They might wonder what's wrong with you. She's putting her life at risk to travel alone like that. And would you want to do that? Would you want to travel through the desert roads to get back to Judah all by yourself? What a harrowing thing. So they say, no, we're going to go on with you. But Naomi is firm about this. Go back, my dear daughters. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I still have sons in my womb who can become your future husbands? Go back, dear daughters, on your way. Please, I'm begging you. I'm too old to get a husband. Even if I could, what's going to happen? Even if I could conceive two more children, are you going to wait around long enough for them to grow up? <laughs> Hazel and I were talking about this this week, and she said, yeah, and are they going to want them by the time they do? Probably not. You know, it's easy to laugh about it, but these are the highest stakes in these people's lives. It's like losing your house and your husband and your job and your whole family. It was no laughing matter. Dear daughters, go. It's not easy for me to say this. It's a bitter pill for me to swallow says Naomi, more bitter for me than it is for you. Just a little twinge there of the pity party. Well, she's, she's worthy of our pity, isn't she? But also, there is something about that so relatable, and yet, if we're going to be honest about it, so futile. That feeling that comes so readily to us that says, oh, it's harder for me than it is for you. But it's okay. I'll suffer on. A little bit of the martyr there. Listen to this statement from Naomi and see if you've ever had it in your mouth, in your heart. God has dealt me a hard blow. She's not wrong. It's like the story of Job. You can't, you can't fault the person for saying I didn't want this, I didn't deserve it, and God let it happen. And once upon a time, sometime in your life, that has been true or will be true. And maybe it's true right now. They cried openly. And then at last, Orpah, the first daughter-in-law, having fully fulfilled her, her filial duty 
to her mother-in-law, does the only thing that really makes sense in the economy of that era. She goes back to her own family. She goes back to those that would take her back in and care for her and the possibility that she could find a new husband. But she also goes back to what she knows. She's never lived in Israel. Imagine that you're dealing with this situation where you're widowed, where you're going to have to work hard, where you're probably not going to find any future hope or, or economic advantage, and you're going to be a foreigner. Well, some of you can relate to this analogy much better than I can. You know that it's not an easy thing if you've relocated to a new country. That's no easy thing to do. It requires extraordinary emotional stamina. It requires a tremendous degree of energy and resolve. And it very often involves being extremely homesick for where you came from. The food that's familiar to you and the language and the, and the nature of the environment around you. Everything is different in a different country. So I don't fault Orpah for going back. But it's interesting, isn't it, how often in the stories of God, it's the people that look back and go back that find the land of loss continues wherever they are. But it's the people like Ruth who hold on to the Lord and embrace the situation because they are embracing God who is God over the situation, who experience a breakthrough, who live out a life that produces legacy. Ruth embraced Naomi and she held on. It's because Ruth has in her heart not just the social responsibility but the spiritual commitment to declare an oath of loyalty. Naomi says to Ruth, look, Orpah left. Your sister-in-law's going back home to live with her own people, to worship her own gods. I understand. You can do the same. It's okay, honey. Go with her. But Ruth says, don't make me. Please don't force me to leave. Don't make me go back home. I want to go with you. My home is with you. When I left my family to join your family, I didn't stop loving them, but I started a commitment to you that I will not cancel. I made an oath of loyalty to your son, to you, to your Lord. I'll go to your land. I'll be among your people. In fact, your people will be my people. Your land will be my land. Your God will be my God. Now, if you go back in the lineage, not of Ruth, but of the family she is marrying into, you would find that there's precedent for a woman not of Israel who nevertheless says, I recognize that the God of Israel is the God of everybody, and I am willing to leave my known situation in order to cleave to your extraordinary God. Her name was Rahab, remember her? She lived in the city of Jericho. And when, in the days of Joshua, the children of Israel were coming in, she said, I've heard about your God, and I've seen the victories, and your God is the God of all the earth, and I'll serve your God. If you will let me be part of you, don't turn me away. And they said, hang that scarlet rope of hope in your window. And she also is in the lineage of David. Ruth is becoming part of, 
of that family. Because you see, the important point, despite what I've said about biology, the important point is theology. In whom do you believe? In whom have you put your trust? Who will you hold on to? Ruth is saying, I will hold on to you. Not just Naomi, but the Lord. Where you die, I'll die. And that's where I'm going to be buried. So help me, God. Not even death itself is going to come between us. <laughs> Makes me think of Song of Songs, where it is said, love is stronger than death. And that's the loyalty of Ruth. It's love that says, I will stand by you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was that kind of a friend, when she saw that Ruth had that kind of faith and that her heart was set on going with her, she gave in. She accepted it. But I think part of Naomi's problem is she doesn't want to feel hope because she's been so hurt by hope before. Let me say that again. Naomi doesn't want to hope because she's afraid to hope because her hope has been dashed against the rocks of reality. And she doesn't want to keep on hoping because she doesn't want to keep on hurting. The pain of tragedy has wrapped around her. That's a reality of widowhood. Anyone who has lost a spouse, a woman who's lost a husband, a husband who's lost a wife, likely can deeply relate to this kind of hurt because it's a kind of hurt that goes so extraordinarily deep for most people. But there are other losses that people can experience. And by the way, those losses are in display in Naomi's life also, to lose a child. But to lose hope is maybe the greatest tragedy of all. And often it's those other kinds of losses or things like famine and war and disease that can cause us to lose faith that is perhaps the most frightening prospect of all. Because most people can bear almost anything if they believe it will get better. But if you get to the place where you think it's bad and it's only going to get worse, then oh, how dark the world can become. And I think there is something of that that is in the atmosphere of our very environment in these days. That too many people are becoming like Naomi and saying, you know what, the world is just going to get worse and worse. And the reality is it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You might say, well, pastor, don't you know? I mean, read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not God saying things are going to get worse and worse and worse. It's God saying things will ultimately be made right. Yes, there is much that is harrowing and frightening in there. But the reason God shares it with us is so that when we are passing through the land of loss, we will remember the legacy of love, that God is going to make all things new, that God is going to ultimately become victorious, in fact, is indeed already victorious over it all, and we will see that worked out. I think Ruth has the sense of that kind of faith and hope, whereas Naomi has very nearly lost it. In fact, Naomi is such a different person that as the two women travel on together and they finally arrive in Bethlehem, when Naomi is home, home doesn't recognize Naomi. The people who knew her when she had left more than a decade earlier say, is this really Naomi? 
Have you ever seen somebody after a long time, maybe you went to a high school reunion and you go, is that really them? Is that bald guy Ben? What happened to all his hair? Did you see how much weight she gained? <laughs> Have you ever met somebody that you went to school with and you literally didn't recognize them at all? You almost could not believe it's the same person? And then there's other people who haven't changed a bit, right? But it's not just physical. Maybe you've encountered somebody who went through a trauma or a loss and they're just a shell of themselves. And that's the way Naomi seems. Is this really our Naomi? The one who was so happy when she was married, so blessed by the birth of her boys, who had so much optimism when they were relocating to Moab? Is this her? That cheerful one? So downcast? So wearied? She's aged 50 years in 10. And Naomi says, yeah, don't call me Naomi anymore because her name means my delight. It means pleasant. She said, don't call me pleasant. You're right. I don't look pleasant and I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. My name is Mara. Do you remember in our series on James when James was talking about the power of the tongue, how it can be pleasant or bitter? And he described, can a sweet spring produce bitter water or a bitter spring produce sweet water? And we went back to describing the place called Mara that had been named Mara. That's in the history of Israel. And here we see Naomi knows it as well as she knows the language. And she says, I'm like that place. I'm bitter. I've been salted by tragedy. The strong one, the almighty, has dealt me a bitter blow. I left this place full of life, full of hope, and God has brought me back here with absolutely nothing but the clothes on my back. So why would you call me delighted? Why would you call me pleasant? Why would you call me my own name? Because I'm not even myself anymore. And don't call me happy. God doesn't. The Almighty has made me bitter. You know, tough times come and God allows things to happen that we may not be happy with. But remember this, God never does wrong to anyone. God only does right. You say, well, where does wrong come from? There's many places that wrong comes from. But most of the wrong we can see on display here is actually in Naomi's own heart. And you could say, well, I understand because she's been through so much. And she has. But then again, so is Ruth. So there is a way to walk without giving in to all that bitterness. But you and I can certainly relate to how bitterness begins and where it can go. There's a bitterness within Naomi, but God's going to deal with it. There is a hope within Ruth, and God is going to honor it. And so they're back. Naomi, call her what you will, is back. And Ruth, a foreigner who doesn't belong in this land, who isn't even allowed to be a part of it. In fact, it is often argued that the reason why this book is placed in the word of God is because it is to formally acknowledge that a woman who isn't even supposed to be a part of the heritage of Israel is part of the heritage of the king. 
And so it is a Ruth Regency. It shows the reason that it's okay that our king came from a Moabite grandmother is because the Moabite grandmother left Moab for Israel, left her old gods for the one God who is the God of all hope. And she said, I am loyal to Yahweh. And so when they arrived in Bethlehem, the house of bread, the place of grain, the place of provision, they arrived just in time for the beginning of the grain harvest. Don't you know that that was God's design? Once upon a time, everything went wrong, and Naomi said, there is no meaning to it at all anymore. I throw up my hands. You all ought to leave me. You don't want to call me what I used to be called because there is no more hope. And in fact, hope has just arrived with them. God is bringing about a harvest in the midst of the land of loss. In the very place that they left, because it was the place of famine, it is going to be the place of feasting. But feasting so much better than just bread, because people don't live on bread alone. They live on the bread of heaven. The feast that is being prepared is not just to feed them, it's to feed us, our eternal spirit. So what you choose to believe about who you are and what God is doing in you and what you choose to believe about God's purpose for you, all of that matters because there's more than just your life involved. I want to conclude by making some summary statements about each of these sections. First of all, there are some names that need to be known in order to understand what's happening in this tale that is taking place in the land of loss. Bethlehem, as I mentioned, is the house or place of bread. It is named for provision, but it's also a place, and we talked about this several weeks back. In fact, we talked about it even during the Advent season. It's a place where blessing and burden happen together. We are focused on loyalty in today's message. Next week, we're going to talk about labor, and labor is like that. When a woman goes into labor, there is at the same time pain and beauty, Sorrow in the sense of what is presently being experienced and laborious effort, but also joy and expectation about what is to come. On the road into Bethlehem, generations before, Jacob and his wife, his, his favored wife, the woman who had borne his favorite son, Joseph. I'm not saying it's right to play favorites. The family suffered a lot for it, but that's just the case. She was pregnant with a second child. It would be her last. His name was Benjamin, son of my strength, although she named him Benoni, son of my sorrow. Both go together, just like on this table. The body and blood of Christ that was sacrificed on the cross and buried in the tomb goes together with the joy of how my sin and yours was forgiven by what he did and how our resurrection is promised in his. Bethlehem is a place like that. And so in the days of Jacob and Rachel, when Rachel died, she died in Bethlehem Ephrathah, the place of provision, but also a place of hardship, a place of new life, the child was born there, and a place of death, she was buried there. Ephrathah means fruitful, but it has long been associated also with ash heap. 
The, etymo the etymology of this is somewhat debated and a little bit difficult to say with certainty. But it is true that the word for fruit and ash seem to be related in the he ancient Hebrew. And there's a couple of explanations for this. One thing is, if you're a farmer, you may be aware that ash is actually a fertilizer. Wood ash makes soil more fruitful. And so the very thing that is ashy is also fruitful. And piles of ash were used by ancient farmers to make the plot of ground more fruitful, especially in times of famine. It's also probably related to a sacrifice. Because remember that the fruitful offering was to be brought to the Lord and burned. And so what was the fruit of the harvest was offered up to God and what remained was the ash. Now you can look at the ash and say, the best of what I had to offer is gone. Son of my sorrow. Or you can say the best of what I had to offer has gone to be with God. And God is my strength. And so the son of God's right hand is the source of my joy. Judah means praise. So people who were living in the land of praise and in the place of provision were experiencing famine. And what was supposed to be fruitful was the ash heap of lost hope. In fact, it's an ash heap that Job is described sitting on. You see how these things, joy and sorrow, they run on parallel tracks. They often come in the same package. If you want one, you've got to have the other. It's two sides of a coin. And it's not because God wants people to hurt. It's because God is teaching us how to hope. They went to the land of Moab, which means of his father. It was named that because the history of Moab is a little bit uh, scandalous. You rem may remember that Lot, who lived in the land of Los himself, who lived in the place of Sodom, and barely got out of it. And in fact, his wife, like Orpah, was one who looked back. And when she did look back, she was turned to salt. But Lot and his daughters went forward and found their place, but the daughters were rather like Naomi. What hope are we going to have? Who's ever going to be a husband to us? So let's get our father drunk and sleep with him. I'll do it tonight and you'll do it tomorrow night and we'll have children. It's a scandalous story. It's in the Bible. And when they did so, they gave their children names, Ammon and Moab, that reflect that their children were also of their father. Now, why do I bring it up? not just for you know, the shock value of it, but to say that embedded in the legacy of Moab is a land that says, God isn't going to do it for us. We better find out a way to do it ourselves. And it produces the most perverse kind of incestuous logic. But it's born out of fear. How are we going to provide for ourselves? Where are we going to get what we need? Look what God did. So we better do it ourselves. And that's where they were going Naomi and her family, they were going to the land that had learned to live according to their own resources. Elimelech's name means God is king. In the days when there was no king in Israel, Elimelech was born under the name that God is our king, but he didn't bear it out. He said, instead, I'll go to the place where the gods of Moab rule. Now, as we know, Naomi's name was meant to be pleasant and delightful, but that became a loss to her when she lost everything else. Her children's name reflect that they were probably born with problems to begin with. Malin means sickness. Who would name their child sickness? Probably because he was born perhaps even during the time of famine 
or during a time of plague, during a time of sickness and illness, and he survived. And so they named him because even from an infant, perhaps, this is my conjecture, even from infancy, they said, God enabled us to keep hold of this child who otherwise would have died. And Killian has a similar name. It means pining or wasting away. In fact, it's probably not surprising that ultimately they die apparently young because they probably were not in great health to begin with. Now, Orpah's name means gazelle, and she takes off as fast as one, as it turns out. But as you know, Ruth's name means friendship. All of these things are combined in the account to make us aware that we are living in the same kind of world. There is the place of God's provision, but there is also the reality of hardship. And the Lord is saying to you and I, which one do you trust in more? The pain of what you are fearing and facing or the truth of what I am promising? And in fact, it is a blessing that we have this opportunity to choose faith. It is a blessing that God says, come with me, but invites us to make the oath of loyalty to him. In the place that you have in your bulletin at home, you can print it out if you like, or you can just write it down on a sheet of paper. I'm inviting you to jot something down right now. What is for you in your land of loss right now the thing that you suffer from? The thing that you feel God took from you or you simply say the reality is this this has been turned to ash in my life. Maybe it's something from your past. Maybe it's something that you feel is in the moment at risk. It's sort of on the scales. It's at the tipping point. It's right on the edge. And it may not be a loss just yet, but you feel like it's burning up right in front of me. It's turning to dust right in front of me. Maybe it's something in the future, but you no longer have the hope for it. You're like Naomi. You say, you know what? Don't, don't say that to me anymore. Don't tell me about that. You ever felt this way? Somebody says to you, well, you know, the Lord does this or the Lord does this. And they, they quote a scripture and you just say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that stuff right now. I know what the Bible says. I know what you say about God, but I'm not interested in that. I've got a bitter pill that I'm swallowing. What's yours right now? Because I felt that way. I felt that way this week. I'm not proud of that, but I also want you to know I may as well not be ashamed of it. What I want is I want to repent of it. I want to take that to God and say, you know, I want to be pleasant. I want my delight to be yours. When you said count it all joy, you meant it. So here is the ash that I have to offer you. Because see, you can offer fruitfulness to God and you should, but what God does is he takes ashes and turns them into fruit. Beauty for ashes. Let beauty come out of ashes. What are the ashes in your life? And what is the response of the Lord about it? What is God saying to you? Here, here's my hand. Put your hand in mine. Let's reason together. Let's covenant together. This table that we're going to partake of in just a moment This is your handshake with God today. It's your embrace. Remember how the word said that Ruth embraced the Naomi? Ruth embraced the Lord. Jesus wants to embrace you and I today. What is he asking for you to commit 
to him in this season. A relationship, a hope, a problem, an issue. And he's just saying, give it entirely to me so that you're not going to go back where you came from and you're not going to go home and tell everybody, don't call me the good thing anymore. I want to be known as the bad. But instead, like Ruth, you're going to say, God, wherever you go, I'm following. And where is the pain of tragedy that God wants to heal today in you by his blood? I'm going to ask those who are going to be serving from the table to come to us. They arrived in Bethlehem just in time for the beginning of the harvest. It's the story of Ruth and Naomi. It's the story of Joseph and Mary. Because when they arrived, whatever the season was in the world around them, the season in the spirit was that the bread of heaven was arriving in the world. And that man, Jesus, is God. He lived and died so that you and I could know, even in the land of loss, the Lord of hope and the King of life. Whatever you may be struggling with in the moment, whatever our world is facing, there is nothing that God is not aware of. There is nothing too big or too hard for God. It's never too late with God. But there are things that God calls us to let go of. To turn to Him in such a way that we have no plan B. All of our hope is wrapped up in Him. Take your piece of bread and look at it. For every bitter pill that you've ever had to swallow, here is a better word from God. The love of the Lord that covers the multitude of your sins and mine, the blessing of God that is more powerful than the curses of life, the word of the Lord that is the living God himself. And that word was made flesh. And that is the flesh that you and I eat today. As we partake of this bread, we spiritually partake as the body of Christ. Let him feed whatever is famine in you. Let him heal whatever is hurt in you. In your body, in your mind, in your spirit, in your relationships, in your life. Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us so that we could be made whole. And we receive of this covenant meal now, Lord, trusting that you, God of life, will make things right in us. The oath of loyalty is a confession of covenant. And this is the cup of the covenant of the Lord. Jesus says, this is my blood. What more can you ask of a friend than that they would lay down their life for you? The life is in the blood. The life of the Lord 
is in this cup of the covenant. Receive of the forgiveness of your sins, the assurance of it once again, and the healing that comes from knowing that God will never leave you nor forsake you. He forgives you and cleanses you and he will give you that future and a hope that he has for you. Lord, we repent of our sins. We receive of your blood and we confess our commitment once again to this covenant. Our loyalty, Lord, is to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I realized something as I was preaching today. My brain can't do math well enough to even figure out what time was I supposed to end? That's why I've probably gone far longer than you would have anticipated. But there's further that we have to go in the story of Ruth. And so I invite you to read Ruth this week and continue with me in this journey because there is a harvest ahead for people who will hope in the things of the Lord like Ruth did. And there is labor involved. And the Lord wants you and I to have the strength and the wisdom to move forward in that labor in a way that allows him to bring forth life in us. So in this week, no matter what you may face, no matter what may come on the world scene or once upon a time in your life, remember this, God is with you, he's for you and not against you, and he's inviting you to hold his hand and walk the path and let him light the light of hope in you afresh and anew these days. May that light and all of his hope and all of his love shine not only to you but through you, to the world around you in need for the harvest of the Lord and for the glory of the King. Amen. God bless you.